very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm coming at you from uh, August today, but I'm going to give you a podcast that I've been sitting on for a while. It's one that I recorded back in May when I was trying to, you know, get some ideas together um, at an earlier time when the podcast just first started out. To me, you know, when I listen back to it now, the talking still sounds a bit weird that I was doing the podcast, still trying to find my style. I'm going a bit slower than usual, so don't mind to boost that baby up to about 1.5 times faster in your podcast style if it's too slow for your liking. But, you know, you might like it. I believe that I'm doing a little bit of a William Shatner there too also, but you know, as a Canadian, maybe that just comes to me yeah, naturally. Okay, now that you've been forewarned, let's get into the game. I say a philosophy quote, I say it again, I give you five seconds, you can answer it or I'll tell you the answer, whichever comes first. Here it goes. The greatest Happiness of the greatest number is the foundation of morals and legislation. Ooh, that one sounds a little bit utilitarian. Let's hear it again. The greatest happiness of the greatest number is the foundation of morals and legislation. Okay, let's count down. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, that is none other than Jeremy Bentham, the father of utilitarianism and the godfather of John Stuart Mill. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, his body is stuffed and preserved on display at the University College in London. Yeah, so he's, he's been mummified. Bentham asked that his body be preserved so that he could be wheeled out at parties if his friends missed him. Um, so that's what they did. Yeah, those mad lads. And his body has even been stolen and then recovered over the years. You can Google uh, Jeremy Bentham uh, stuffed for some, you know, kind of rather ghoulish pictures. His uh, skin didn't really hold up too well, unsurprisingly. Uh, the guy was a, you know, the guy was a bit out there, Bentham. Uh, also, he had a cat named the Reverend Sir John Langbourne. It's funny because, you know, utilitarianism is the most rational of all ethical systems in the sense, you know, that it tries to quantify happiness. It doesn't leave much room for the abstract and indefinable. But, you know, given the sober, the sober-minded philosophy, uh, he's a bit, seems to be a bit of a, you know, a, kind of a freakish weirdo. You know, that sober-thinking, weird-ass living contrasted with, uh, you know, the sober-thinking contrasted with the weird-ass eccentric living is what you know I like to see in my philosophers yeah it's kind of an interesting clash okay on to the main of the episode everyone. Thank you for tuning in. It's May 2020. And this is probably my favorite season where I live here in Japan. It's very green, very lush. Okay. 
Enough obligatory small talk. Today, I'm going to talk about big data, big data, big data, crafting social policy, and the controversial Martin Heidegger. These are three quite different topics, and I'm going to try to weave them all together. Today, I'm not feeling the best. Uh, hopefully, it's just a little bit of a cold, so excuse the voice. Anyway, stay safe and healthy in these times, of course, and all times, and please enjoy. We live in an age of exponential progress in terms of computing power. Perhaps we have all heard of Moore's Law. Moore's Law is the prediction that the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit doubles about every two years, or sometimes even less. Gordon Moore, former CEO of Intel, made this bold prediction in 1965, and it is held up over time. If anything, the growth in computing power seems to require only 18 months to double. But alas, other areas of technology do not have this exponential growth rate. If cars followed this growth rate, for example, over the last 50 years, a car that could drive 80 kilometers an hour in the early 70s could now go at a speed of over 300,000 kilometers per hour. Uh, we might not want that. We know it's not safe, but uh, that's the limits of the automobile technology. So... Technological innovation aside from computing takes a far more gradual course of innovation. Well, what about innovation in social policy? Does it follow the course of automobiles or the course of computing power? Cars, technology, coffee makers, you get the idea. You get the idea that all these things may make a gradual progress, but they do make progress nevertheless these everyday objects. But what about crafting our social policy? Do we make any social progress at all? Are we able to create better, more nuanced social policy that allows us to get the results we desire uh, now than we were able to create 50 years ago? What if we applied these exponential growth rates in computing power and use them for the good of creating social policy? This is an interesting question and one that a lot of policymakers and sociologists have tried to tackle. Now, at the outset, I'd like to say that people on both right and the left, despite the myriad differences in pursuing their goals, have some general goals in common, I think it's safe to say. For example, both the right and the left, I think, would prefer that the deficit was lower, all things being equal. The unemployment rate was lower. The air was cleaner. Schools were better able to equip students for life. Streets were safer, etc. They just have often very incommensurable ways of getting towards these goals, as we know in the messy world of politics. I'm sure those on the right do not enjoy pollution, despite their voting against environmental protection. No one wants to live in a polluted place, right? Nor do I think left-wing people are pro-crime. 
just because they believe in a softer criminal justice system. At least I hope not on these things. So, the dream is that we can use computing power to reach these general goals on which we agree on. This is what we mean by a technocratic state. A technocratic state bypasses politics by identifying or positing certain goals, lower crime rate, for example, less pollution, and figuring out the best means to achieving these goals. Politics does not enter into the equation in these cases because the goals are shared by consensus across the aisle, and that means identified to produce the desired results that cannot be argued with. The means that they develop would be the best possible way to achieve those goals. So, if you wanted goal X, the technocrats' policy that delivered goal X in the most efficient way possible, whilst still being compatible with our other shared desired values, would be the only rational choice. Policymakers under this idea of a technocracy are chosen on the basis of their expertise or skill, not on their political affiliation, connections, democratic popularity, ideology, or being a member of the Trump family. These ideas have very interesting roots. What is now called technocracy used to be, and still sometimes kind of is, called positivism. Positivism is a philosophical but also a sociological theory uh, that posits that certain knowledge is based on natural phenomena and their properties and relations. That's how we get certainty. Um, so uh, information derived from our sensory experience is interpreted through reason and logic, and it uh, forms the exclusive source of all certainty. Positivism holds that valid knowledge, anything that we call true, is found only within these empirical programs. Uh, it rests its theories on verified data, what they call positive facts. It's basically an empirical theory. Um, furthermore, positivism holds that society, like the physical world and science uh, operates according to general laws that we can understand. Uh, introspective and intuitive knowledge is uh, it's rejected. Uh, and this approach was championed by uh, the philosopher, mathematician, and social scientist Auguste Comte, a French philosopher in the early 19th century, and he thought that the social world, the world of social policy, could be studied in the same way that uh, we study science. The rules of society have laws in the same way that gravity is a law. Um, and he even thought that art could be understood under the same approach. 
Now, let's continue on with modern times. Many in Silicon Valley have embraced this uh, idea of technocracy, this ideology without ideology. Computers uh, have seemed to alter the world so much and seemingly improve the world in areas that computers have touched. So the understanding is, since computers can do these great things, according to the people in Silicon Valley, why not apply this incredible tool to our social problems? And this is the idea where big data comes in. Now, just as a rejoinder, a lot of people do not think the things that big computing have uh, created, things that uh, have come out of Silicon Valley are all that great. Instagram, Facebook, social media, um, the surveillance state, things like that. Now, big data is a blanket term for the attempt to analyze and systematically extract information from data sets that are too large or complex to be dealt with by people and traditional computing power. The work may require massively parallel software running on tens, hundreds, or even thousands of servers. It is a huge, huge undertaking. According to IBM, the volume of information one can access has grown exponentially. 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. I'm going to repeat that for effect. 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. And I'm sure it's all worthwhile. I'm going to stop right there. And the next time, we'll get into some of the progress that, that big data, or data, I don't know, has made in tackling problems that humans face. And then we will get into some of its shortcomings. Then I will use Martin Heidegger, the controversial but somewhat essential Martin Heidegger, to show why people... Sorry, why perhaps these shortcomings of big data as applied to social problems may be insurmountable. Thank you, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.